Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. This is episode 82 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Jennifer Kisner. She has a master's degree from Florida Atlantic University and obtained her C's in 1998. She's worked mainly with adults in acute care in the outpatient setting, and she has worked at Stanford since 2000. She's achieved her board certification in swallowing, her MBS IMP certification, and currently performs fees in MBS and is a clinical specialist in head and neck oncology at an outpatient clinic. Jennifer also presents at state and national conventions on the areas of dysphagia and head and neck oncology, and she organizes an annual Stanford Fees Conference with a focus on using simulation for training and giving resources to clinicians who want to bring fees into their facilities, which is totally cool because I had no idea about this simulation thing, so it's awesome. And also because Jennifer's totally bored and totally nuts like the rest of us, she's currently enrolled in a clinical doctorate program with her capstone project regarding changes in tongue measurements in patients with partial glossectomy with radial forearm free flap reconstruction following PO trials. Jennifer, you rock, and I hope you guys all enjoy this episode. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Teresa. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you. Thank you so, so much times a million for reaching out to me and offering to talk about this topic. I was just telling you, I love when people like you just appear in my life full of knowledge, full of experience, doing wonderful things, and you want to share the world. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about who you are. So um, I have been a speech pathologist for over 21 years now, um, mainly working with adults in acute care, subacute, outpatient settings. I've worked with neurologically impaired patients, transplant patients, brain injury, trach dependent patients, head and neck cancer patients. I was a manager at Stanford in the critical care and neuro rehab for over 10 years. And currently, I'm a clinical specialist in the head and neck oncology clinic at Stanford. I have my board certification in swallowing and swallowing disorders since 2010. I have my MBS IMP certification. And last year, I began a clinical doctorate program at Rocky Mountain University uh, in Provo, Utah. Awesome. So on top of working full-time and a mother of two and a wife, I decided to go back and why not? Yeah. (laughs) I love people that do it all. Yes. (laughs) Or we think we can do it all, but we can, we absolutely can. It's priorities. (laughs) Absolutely. People don't need to be watching this housewives trash. So that's what I say. I'm like, if you get that housewives out of your life, you got 10 extra hours a week you can do with something useful. So yeah. All right. So what are we going to talk about today, Jennifer? So we are going to talk about how to set up a fees program in your facility. And it is such a daunting task to actually, where do I begin? How do I get the equipment? Who do I talk to? Who are my stakeholders? 
So really what I want to do today uh, is really to kind of walk you through the steps that we went through in our facility. And we really didn't feel like we had that much guidance for some of the issues and hills that we had to deal with. So our goal, my colleague and friend, Sandra Dean, uh, we actually put together a, a course that I'll talk about hopefully later, but we just wanted to walk people through how to get fees going in their facility and, and really not have to deal with the issues that we dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me just chime in. I know some of you are probably thinking, oh, Selena Reese was already on the podcast and she talked about this. And Selena talked about it from the perspective of helping facilities to even start these programs. And I love having Jennifer's view now from being on the inside and trying to push for this. So I think Jennifer's episode plus Selena's episode would be kind of the perfect combo for you to uh, listen to when you're trying to push forward for this. So so I promise this is going to be a different perspective than what Selena already gave us. So, okay. Just wanted to say that, Jennifer. Yeah. And I think there's, there'll be some, you know, carryover too, or crossover from, from both of the podcasts. And that's not a bad thing. Right. Right. You people need to hear it. Yeah. We need to hear it more than sometimes. Yeah. Um, so really, you know, before you're even going to start doing fees, we need to go back and we need to look at the literature. And there are over 500 plus articles written on fees. And I'll make sure that I have, not all of them, but I'll have a good Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that in the research of the reference section. Well, and what we were just talking about off air, Jennifer, is that Susan Langmore's first paper came out, what, 31 years ago? 1988 was the first yeah. study. And it is amazing that 31 years later, we still, speech pathologists that are evaluating and treating dysphagia do not have the tools to do their job in their yep. facilities. 100%. So, Yep. So, and, and there are more dates that kind of go back that I, I want to talk about. But after the literature, I think also looking at the website, ASHA has so many great articles. They have a knowledge, skills, and abilities handout that I'll talk about also in a minute. And they have research articles and why fees is within the scope of practice within our field. So there's a lot of information that you can get from ASHA to kind of put together really before you go talk to your administrators, your stakeholders, the people who are the decision makers in your facility who get to say yay or nay about bringing new you know, products and things into your facilities. Yeah. And, and thank you for mentioning ASHA too. Just yesterday I was doing a fees and there was a student in there and she said, I'm, I'm really not sure how this, is, you know, I said, do you have any questions about fees? Like, I'm super passionate about it. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so glad you're learning about it as a student. She's like, well, I'm just really confused because our professor said that speech pathologists can't do it, that it's not within our scope of practice, that only ENTs can do it. And I said, well, you know how you're trying to get your C's next year? You're going to finish, you're going to graduate, you're going to do your clinical fellowship year. Then you're going to get your C's by this group called ASHA. I was like, type fees into ASHA.org and see what pops up. And she was like, oh, my God. OK. And I was like, we 100 percent can do this. We 100 percent should be doing this. So uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me actually move on to, to that topic, because you know what? Actually, I want to take a step back and just talk about the some of the landmark studies. So the very first study that we just talked about in 1988 in the dysphagia journal was called Fiber Optic Endoscopic Examination of Swallowing Safety, a new procedure. And um, that was Susan Langmore, um, Schatz and Olson. And that's really where, where it began. There's also 
1991, another study by the same group entitled Endoscopic and Videofluoroscopic Evaluations of Swallowing and Aspiration. And then I'll just name one more. There's so many that just around that time frame, indications and techniques of endoscopy and evaluation of cervical dysphagia comparison with radiology. And that was in 1994, also in the dysphagia journal. So, you know, all of these studies, you know, about 30 years ago, and they really set the stage for what is best practice for what we need to be doing with our patients. And then if you look at the ASHA website, like you were just alluding to, back in 1991, ASHA included fees into our scope of practice. And they just reported that appropriate training and competency testing is required for this quote unquote advanced skill set. And they have, you know, updated and added to the scope of practice to include not only flexible nasal endoscopy, but also the rigid oral endoscopy or the stroboscopy for the voice patients. But this has all been, you know, back in 1991. So Susan Langmore study came out in 1988. And then ASHA in 1991 said fees is within our scope of practice. I talked about the knowledge, skills, and abilities statement, um, performing fees. Um, it was initially developed by um, Michael Crary. He was the chair, Claire Miller, Joseph Murray, Kathy Peltier, Adrian Perlman, Paula Sullivan, and of course, Susan Langmore. And if you read through the knowledge, skills, and abilities statement that they wrote back, uh, you know, back in the early 90s, they wrote that endoscopic assessment of swallowing function is a portable procedure that may be completed in the clinic office, at bedside, or wherever the patient needs to be examined. So that really was the key, key to, oh, it's not, this test is not just for an ENT clinic or speech pathologists who work within that realm. I was in the acute care for many, many years, and I thought, well, why can't I have this tool in my, in my facility? And then when I went just on to ASHA and looking at the literature, I thought, oh, well, I should be able to do this. And if that's not you know, enough you know, background about where fees came from and the evolution of it, in 1994, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid determined that fees should have their own CPT code. So that's the 92612. What year was that, Jennifer? That was in 1994. Oh my gosh. So yeah, I always first... wonder when when that code came about. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That's 25 years ago. Isn't that isn't that crazy? Yeah. So, so you know, we back in 1988 and just, you know, a few years later, Medicare is saying, okay, you know, it's not just the laryngoscopy CPT code, but this is a separate procedure. So I, I just like, I wanted to start with that because just to give that historic overview, if there are still people who say, well, I, I can't have this or there's not enough background on this. There's so much background on this. There's so much, you know, literature on where fees started and if Medicare is getting on board and saying, yes, this is a tool that has its own code, then, you know, that should be, that should speak volumes to that this is within our scope of practice. And again, looking at the, you know, ASHA position statements from back in the early 90s. And some people have asked me, actually, do you need a special certification from ASHA to do fees or fluoroscopy? 
And really the answer is no, there is no special certification. However, these does require an advanced skill level and you do need some specialty training and it does take time in order for you to feel comfortable and confident in performing fees. I just like to, you know, say just because we're allowed to do a procedure doesn't mean that we should jump in and just do that procedure. Yes. I'd love to dive into this more, Jennifer. Yes. Oh, it's very, very different than, oh, there's a new evaluation for aphasia out there. You know, should I try it? Sure. Go ahead and try an evaluation tool. We're not going, there's no injury. <laughs> there's no you know, risk of safety for the patient. But doing a procedure where you're placing a scope you know, transnasally to get into the hypopharynx, it is a skill. And I think that's where we really need our physician champions, maybe ENTs, um, endoscopists at your facility that you can hook up with, because that's, that's where we need to learn the skill. I, I really don't believe, and I know some state organization, it, it can be a little bit tricky where they say ENT has to sign you off to do fees. I think they need to sign us off to be endoscopists, right? They need yeah. to sign us off to say that we can safely pass a scope. But once the scope is in there, my ENTs don't know what a supraglottic swallow is. They don't know why I would recommend doing a chin tuck or a head turn or any maneuvers. They, they don't know. So I think they need to teach someone how to safely pass the scope. And then we need as other speech pathologists to perform the test and sign you off and being competent in performing the test. So Jennifer, can you speak a little bit about, you know, the difference between scoping a healthy normal, me or you, or scoping a critically ill patient in the ICU? I think this is where we're having a huge problem in our field now is that people aren't getting properly trained and then they're going into the ICU seeing patients that are critically ill and failing miserably and never want to do it again and say fees is horrible. Mm -hmm. I've seen this happen numerous times. So I'd love for you to talk about why it's so important to get really thorough adequate training before you go out independently. Oh, for sure. So in the fees training programs that I went to and my colleagues went to, we were all sitting in nice ENT rooms and, you know, we were all, you know, perfect patients and we sat still and let you scope us. We scoped each other. And I will, I always remember Sandra and I went to see the very first patient that we did fees on. When we first started doing fees, we went in pairs for about a month just so that we had four eyes on the patient. But we, we walked into this patient's room. He's in the ICU, 26-year-old gentleman with heart failure. He was on an LVAD and waiting for a heart transplant and he's trach- and has a tracheostomy. So we walked in the room and we had our big cart and we thought, hmm, how does this work here? We're in the ICU. There's lots of machines and the patient's not sitting in this nice chair that I can move around and, and have the best, best view. So that really was the impetus for us to take a step back. And before we even went into the ICU with our carts, we walked into the ICU. We, we looked at where, how the patients were, where the, how the beds were. And we said, how can I get the best exam for my patient in this environment? Because if they're able to swallow and I don't want them to wait until they have to get 
it out of the ICU. We can absolutely bring our tool into the ICU. So we would bring our machines in. We would talk to the nurse to say, how do we set this environment up for our procedure? And we made sure we had a table, you know, a tray table for the food. We made sure where, where we were going to stand, where the cart was going to stand. We made sure that no other interruptions were going on during our tests. And what was so important, and when we initially started doing fees, especially in the ICU, we wanted the nurses to really be involved with our test. We wanted them to be there and to see what we were seeing. And it really gave buy-in to the importance of being able to evaluate someone who really their swallowing was okay. But if you walked into their room and looked at them, you'd go, oh, no way, they can't swallow. But to actually get that objective data was really important. And we go, we bring our our card into the ICU on a daily basis. The nurses will call us in and they'll say, you know, it's not every patient that needs this exam, but for those patients that there's a question, maybe they failed their clinical screening tool that the nurses do and they want us to come in and check. We do have protocols. So all of our lung transplant patients will get an objective evaluation with fees just to make sure before they start eating. So it is it is really very doable. I think it's important to set up the environment before you go in for that first test and make it successful and not to be, you know, in you know that horrible experience that you were saying that some some clinicians have. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I, I, I always want to set people up for success. You know, like, like I know things like seem hard and they seem daunting and they may be, and it's like, it's cliche, you know, it's like the time's going to pass anyways. You might as well do something productive with it. You know, it's going to take you a while to get comfortable and competent. Like no one picks up a scope and three passes later says, I'm great. I'm ready to go scope in the ICU. Like, and if you do that, you're wrong. You're a fool. So it's so important. And I'll talk about that in a little bit, just the competency and how long it takes for you to really feel comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. This is just one thing, you know, I know that they are trying to work on like a certification for fees, which I, I'm really, I, I don't like rules and I don't like government interference. <laughs> but like in this case, like I want rules because I hate that people are not getting proper training and doing things wrong and And then it's setting a bad example for other companies and, you know, just people are all of a sudden saying, nope, fees is bad. We don't want it here because of one bad apple ruining it. So I'm all for actual (laughs) proper training and certifications in this in this realm. But yeah. So so actually this um, my colleague Sandra and I, we do a a fees course once a year at Stanford. It's coming up in June. And the spin that we have on this course, it's not only, you know, having our great ENT speakers talk about anatomy and physiology and have our great speech pathology colleagues come in and talk about interpreting fees and getting your passes. But we actually were very lucky that we we have a simulation lab that we're oh, able awesome. to do this course in. So we have set up two ICU rooms. We split the group into, you know, two different, um, two different groups and the ICU room. I mean, we have, you know, dialysis machines, ventilator machines, LVAD machines, you know, every machine you can think of. We have, we have bossy nurses. We have, (laughs) Uh, overbearing family members, actors that come in there and help us. Oh my God. I love it. 
So we walk in and it's a simulation of doing a fees in an ICU environment. I hope you pass out extra deodorant too, because that's like when I sweat the most like repulsive smell is when I have like 30 people around me. <laughs> but but just to do this in a safe environment where you bring your card in and then you take that moment and assess the situation and say, you know, as the speech pathologist running the test in an ICU, you are running that test and you need to act like you're running that test and you need to make sure that your environment is safe so that you can do what you need to do. And so we wanted to take away all of the anxiety of a real situation, but put you in something that was safe enough that you felt like you can, you know, make some mistakes and really learn along the way. So that's a really fun part of our course where... That sounds so awesome. I had no idea about that. So cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. People really, really enjoy that part. If you or your facility are interested in purchasing a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fees studies, please check out our wonderful sponsor, NDOHD. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. They have true high-definition fees imaging system with HD image display and capture, a crisp color image, unsurpassed digital quality, HD image with better resolution than legacy systems, and views the details of patient anatomy and double the resolution of standard definition video. So please contact them at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. So going back to kind of just how do we, you know, we have all of this great information. We just blew our own minds to say, okay, this has been going on for over 31 years. Uh, The first study came out, you know, back in, in 1988. And, and I've done my research and looked on ASHA. And now what do I do with all this information? Well, the next step is to really identify who are your stakeholders and who are those people in your facility that you need to connect with so that they can help you move on and get this program going. Uh, it, it takes a village to get a, a fees program going. That's my, that would be my quote. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it is not something that you're going to be able to do on your own. So there are people like the rehabilitation manager or director. You want those advocates on your side. Maybe when you're meeting with the senior administrators in your facility, pharmacy is someone that you really need to connect with because they might be the folks that are giving out the lidocaine or holding the blue blue food coloring for your tests. Infection control. We need to say, how are these scopes going to be cleaned and processed and Having that ENT or pulmonary MD advocate is really, really important. Uh, we had such great ENTs in our, in our uh, facility, and they really were very excited to have us do fees. And we also are almost now a second set of eyes where if we're scoping a patient, we might find an incidental thing, something on their vocal cords, something that looks irregular, some kind of mass, and we can and say, hey, we just were doing our swallow eval. We noted this on the test. Can you please come in and look at it? So I was um, sorry to cut you off, Jennifer. I I was talking with a colleague yesterday and she just started this fees contract in an LTAC. And she said that the, the medical director actually called her directly after and just said, I cannot believe what this has done for my patients and what now the power that I actually hold in how I can change these patients' lives while they're here in the LTAC. 
so that this doctor is now, you know, he's like, what can I do for you? How can I, I want every physician to have access to this for his patients. And, you know, it was just such a, such an awesome feeling for her. So I just wish people would, would like, just because one or two physicians may say no, like keep knocking, like, (laughs) and, and just, you know, just to kind of add on to that, I'm in the head neck oncology clinic now. And just yesterday I was seeing a patient for a pre-op evaluation and his cancer was on his lower jaw. And I, I did a pre, pre-operative pre-treatment fees to see where his baseline was. And as I'm in there with the scope, I saw this little just irregular bumpy area in this inner arytenoid space. And I'm going, that's really far from where his primary cancer is. And I just asked the team, hey, can you guys come in and look at this? And I was the first one who had actually scoped the patient in that environment. And so that, again, what a tool that we are, you know, we are colleagues in that way and, and really equals on, you know, I have something to offer that is very specific that we're the only ones that do it. I'm not the surgeon, I'm not the radiation oncologist or anything else, but what I have to offer is just as important to the patient as what you have to offer. So I think I told you, you know, when we talked before, I have little soap boxes. That's okay. (laughs) This is definitely a soapbox. And I've heard you, you know, say this before, you know, don't be afraid to talk to the physicians or think that the physicians are on such a different level because what you have to bring to your patients, nobody else knows. No other departments are going to have the tools that we have and the experience that we have about dysphagia and voice and language. So I think people should feel, you know, at the same level of if someone calls us in to consult on their patients, just like they they consulted maybe ENT or cardiology on their patients, they consulted us on their patients. So we are a part of that team. And I just, I want people to feel comfortable and confident, you know, being able to speak to, you know, the physicians on a very equal level. I think that's just really important. I think I had kind of, no, no, no. I love that. I I had a really kind of eye-opening experience with that. My husband had hip surgery and, you know, he was in recovery after and the, you know, the orthopedic surgeon came in and was just talking to him. And, you know, of course I have a million questions and (laughs) the orthopedic surgeon was like, well, to be honest, like, I'm not sure what is kind of next. And he's like, we'll have to talk to the PT. He is he's my right hand man. He designs everything. Whatever he says is what we're going to go with. I just do the surgery. And I was like, oh my God. And I was like, this guy has so much respect for the PT that he works alongside with. And, you know, then just watching their interaction throughout like the following two weeks as he had to go back for therapy every day. And I was just so impressed that this orthopedic surgeon and this PT just worked so closely together and had such a mutual respect for each other that I was like, gosh, I want this for our field. And there's no reason that it can't be. No reason that it can't be. Absolutely. And let's see, we were talking about the stakeholders. And so we were talking about the physicians where I feel like we can, that's, that's like a whole podcast on its own, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Advocacy and, and being an equal member of the team. There were some things that we didn't really realize before we brought fees in. Like we didn't realize we needed to talk to the medical equipment storage and transport director. Awesome. Okay. uh, where in this hospital is this fees cart going to be stored and who is responsible for transporting it all over the hospital to our patients' rooms and back? So that's definitely something to, to keep in mind. The CNO, the, the chief nurse officer, is just 
such an important part because she, you know, is above our frontline nurses and our frontline nurses, you know, we educate them all the time. They're the ones who do our swallow screens. They're the ones who say, we need you to come in and check and check this patient. So really getting your, your nurses and your CNOs on board, because they're the ones who, even if the physicians didn't see it, they're the ones who might say, Hey, can you put an order for speech? Um, I think this person needs an evaluation. And then depending on your facility, you know, the VP, or the CEOs, they're the financial people to say, you know, when it's time for the capital budgets of the year, you know, getting a fees cart and the scopes, this is definitely, you know, considered capital budget equipment. So making sure that your timing of when you're meeting with these these stakeholders goes along with when, when we need to get our capital budget requests in. And then... I added an IT clinical manager because we actually, in our electronic medical records, we made some templates for our fees, evaluations, and treatments. And again, that wasn't something on our list that we thought at the beginning, but as we were moving through, we thought, oh yeah, we need IT involved too, because they're going to have to help us make some templates if you don't already have them. And if you have electronic medical records that you can add specific templates for, for different evaluations, it's really important. And then you know, also, you know, fees and fluoroscopy, they, they go hand in hand. You know, there's not one test that's better than the other. It's what test is appropriate for my patient that answers my clinical question that I have have the reason I'm doing this exam. And you know, for one patient, it might be a fluoroscopy. For the next patient, it might be a fees. And for the third patient, it might be both. And then there are some facilities where either test may be okay, but I have access to this tool, right? So you know, when you're, when you are talking to your stakeholders, you do want to say, you know, if there are reasons that maybe you can't get into fluoroscopy, such as there's timing or transport issues, maybe we only have certain amount of slots in radiology for your studies. What do we do on the weekends and holidays if we can't get into radiology? So these are other reasons why having another objective tool like fees is, you know, good to advocate for during those, during those meetings. So the next thing that I wanted to talk about was policies and procedures. So just like you have policies and procedures for, you know, bedside evaluations, for speaking valve evaluations, we, we need policies and procedures for doing flexible endoscopy at the bedside. And a lot of facilities, and I know Stanford, definitely, we have our, our joint commission accreditation that comes by every couple of years and make sure that we are doing, you know, following all the rules. And they do this when I was in leadership for 10 years, I, I went through many surveys with them. And they have this protocol that they do sometimes called a tracer survey, where they will go in and find a patient. And then whatever the flow that that patient did, let's say he had cardiac surgery, was in the ICU, went to cardiac rehab, they would find staff members from all of those departments and pull out their, you know, their, their employee files and folders and things that they want to see are, you know, your competencies, your policies. So this is an important piece, you know, to do and maybe not something that people talk about in your general fees course, but when you're going back to your facility, you know, who is maybe in charge, maybe you have a clinical specialist in speech pathology or your manager in speech pathology, but your fees policy and procedure is going to be very similar to, to your others. And what I really love about policies and procedures is that it just, it, it's standard work 
We're all looking at the same script. We're all following the same rules. Like you were saying, there's not a lot of variation in how we perform the study. We even have it down to how to set up food and what size cups do you use and those type of things. And I don't want this to get confused at all with when you're in the study, having to individualize how you do the study and give the trials. That is very different. But just how do we set it up? Typically, how do we move across, you know, getting through the fees? And I think that just keeps us all doing the same thing. And and like I said, standard work. Yeah, excellent. I, I love the way you put that, Jennifer. Because, like I said, I'm I'm a rule hater, but in, in these in these situations, I love rules because it simplifies everything, and everybody knows why the heck we're doing something. You know, it's not just to drive everybody crazy, but there's a purpose, and it's to keep things streamlined and to keep you know Jake go off our backs and things like that. So <laughs> exactly, and you know, we follow the same rules and guidelines that you know nursing has to follow, and respiratory and and dietary and and the physicians of, you know, we all have our policies and procedures that guide our practice. And those policies and procedures need to come from research. So we're looking at the research and it's helping us make these policies. And there's a reason why every couple of years we need to go back and look over our policies and make sure that things haven't changed, right? We need to make sure that there's not been this great groundbreaking research that has come out that says, oh no, actually let's change our policy. And just because I've been around for a long time, I think about giving patients water and ice. And years ago, when I first started, you know, if we gave a patient who was at risk for aspiration a drop of water, Teresa, we were going to kill them, right? Yeah. And I I think so many people still believe that. So, yeah. And then when we brought in, we do a three ounce water protocol. And we, when we went and we did the training, there were definitely some nurses who we got such pushback on because they, it was so ingrained in them from their training of no, they can't eat. No, they can't eat. And even when we talked about the literature and like physiology and we, you know, even down to like, we have aquaporins in our lungs that help redistribute that water into our bodies. And, you know, you know, some of them just, they were so ingrained into, but if I give them water, I'm going to cause them, you know, an adverse reaction. I'm still fighting. There's a hospital around here I'm still fighting with. Like they constantly will write that like on their MBS reports and things like that. And I just want to scream when I see it. I know. <laughs> so I know. And, and, but that's why, you know, when you're having these policies and procedures, making sure you're looking at the literature. I mean, if you go back in your facilities and just see what are my policies, you know, hopefully when you get to the reference section, the references are, you know, within the last 10 years, not, you know, 30 years ago, <laughs> if there's something, you know, things that have changed. So, you know, really important in policies and procedures. And when we started our fees, we had our fees protocol policy and procedure. We had to have a procedure for scope cleaning. We have a procedure for how pharmacy gets us our, what we call our fees kit. We, we actually, we've changed our policy since, but we used to get a little Ziploc bag and it would have lidocaine and our little blue, blue dye and a syringe and they would tube it up. We have this big tube system in the hospital and it would just get tubed up to the patient's room. And so when we knew that we had a, a fees going, we would get this fees kit from pharmacy. And it oh, was excellent. one of, yeah, it was one of those things we didn't 
didn't even think about. We didn't even know that that was something that we needed to delve into. How do we get the lidocaine? Do we want to use lidocaine? Yeah. Do you, do you guys use lidocaine? So we do, like kind of like a lidocaine and decongestant combination. I'm actually in, it's, it's very interesting because I'm in, my, in the head and neck oncology clinic now. And in every room, there's like a bottle of lidocaine every morning. The, the medical assistants go around fill up the lidocaine bottles and, and decongestants. And every patient who walks in pretty much knows, oh yeah, uh, three squirts of that, that numbing stuff in my right nostril. But sometimes in the, in the hospital setting, if a patient's on medications like pain medications and other things, you might not need it even. So it's really, you know, in our policy, we do have a, you know, have line verbiage in there that it is really up to the individual clinician if the patient does not need it. And we let the patient know what it is and they can decide if they feel like they need it. You know, okay. some of our patients already have a, a feeding tube and NG tube in one yeah. already. And they're like, well, I have one in there already. Go ahead. You know? Right, right. Do you feel like it makes a big difference for you? Just I, in the state that I live in, we're not allowed to administer it without a physician. So it's difficult, but I've just, and I'm, I'm hoping you can educate me on this. What I have difficulty grasping is shooting a numbing agent near someone's swallow and asking them <laughs> to swallow normally. So, right. yeah. Right. So there's two things. You don't okay. have to use the spray bottle. Okay. That's only, that's the only thing I've seen. So, okay. Yeah. Well, one of our very inventive ENTs said, well, you have the lidocaine and you take the little two by two gauze, just a little, you know, small piece of gauze, you roll it up and you drench it into the lidocaine and then you put it one in each nair and just have them sniff. And so we were doing that in the, in the acute care. And I would also say, you know, I, I am allowed to administer the lidocaine in my facility. Um, I also don't sit there and give them 20 squirts in each nostril. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I am not liberal at all with the lidocaine. And more so if someone, there's anxiety, if there's, if someone just, you know, has had bad experience in the past, I want to make it a comfortable experience for them because I really, I use my fees to diagnostically see what's going on, but it is an education tool. You know, I sit there and my patients who have had four or five fees, it's, it's kind of comical. I have had a student with me the other day and you know, we're showing, I, I get the image up on the screen of his swallow and, and he goes, Oh yeah, there's my epiglottis. And my student just looked at him like, how does he know that? Ah, I'm like, this is not yeah. our first. Video. Right. Right. That's excellent. Yeah. But that education of the reason why, why do we need to look at your swallow? And, you know, when you, you know, I can sit there and talk at them all day long, but if I show them a picture and say, your airways here, okay. Mm-hmm. That an inch and a half behind it, that's your feeding tube. So we've got two tubes that are right next to each other. If anything's going on, any issues, things can go down the wrong way, right? And so just kind of seeing it, but then watching their own swallow. And like, I think you had said this on another podcast, like it didn't go down the black hole. Like it didn't go down (laughs) (laughs) to the airway. I mean, they, they get that very quickly. So, you know, using fees to, to really educate the patients is such an important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for educating me on the the lidocaine that you guys use. Cool. 
And, and the other thing that we do too, is we just use a little bit of lubrication on the tube itself. Yep. Yep. I do that too. Yeah. yeah. That just helps. And some people who don't even use lubrication will just take some water and just even wet the, you know, wet the tube or they'll just kind of wet the, um, the nair a little bit with a Q-tip just to kind of lubricate the surface in the nose, lubricate the, the scope. So, you know, you don't have to use, you don't have to use any, you know, numbing spray, but it is that it's something that we're we're able to do at our facility. Awesome. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.